0: Amen, amen. Would you take your Bibles and open them to Hebrews chapter 10 as we continue our study through the book of Hebrews. We'll finish the chapter today, Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26 in a Bible study that I've entitled, If We Sin Willfully. If We Sin Willfully. And after learning about the joy of fellowship and the joy of the fellowship family of God, after we've been instructed not to forsake the gathering of ourselves together, We come to another warning in the book of Hebrews, and it's a troubling passage of scripture. It's one of those passages of scripture that if you had a top five of difficult scriptures in the Bible, this would definitely be one of them. Actually, two of them are found in Hebrews. Chapter six, which we've looked at many months ago, and here today in chapter 10, and both of them have been used by people out of context to scare you into thinking that you can lose your salvation if you make a mistake or have a sinful failure in your life as a believer. And it's such a troubling warning that not only has it been misapplied and misinterpreted, but it's confounded Bible students, scholars, commentators, and believers even to this day. And like we were in chapter six, We also want to be reminded today in chapter 10 that we don't want to miss the forest of God's love and faithfulness because of a few difficult scriptural trees. You know how that saying goes that you can lose the forest through the trees? Well, be careful that you don't get stuck in one particular area and you miss the whole point of God's word, of his great love for you and the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's actually pinpointing This section, the the area that this section emphasizes the most is the sufficiency of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in your life. And we don't wanna miss that. Pick up in verse 26 now in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, for if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment And fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has, number one, trampled the Son of God underfoot. Number two, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. And then thirdly, insulted the Spirit of grace. Verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I'm caught at the very beginning of verse 26 by that phrase, if we sin willfully. I mean, don't we all sin willfully? Don't you all sin willfully, yes or no? Of course, So this is a category that will include everyone that's listening. We all sin willfully. And yet, in our willful actions, there are actually two categories, two bigger categories of sins that are important to understand. Number one, there is the sin of commission. The sin of commission. You get the word commit from that same root. And those are sins that we commit on purpose. Really, the sins of commission include those things that we do, even though we know they're wrong. So when you have a sin of commission, you are sending, even though you know it's wrong, you're going to do it anyway. Secondly, there's the sin of omission. Now, this is similar, but a little different. And this is a willful sin on our part, where we know what's right, and we don't do what's Right? So we avoid doing the right thing. The sin of commission, we do the wrong thing. The sin of omission, we avoid doing the right thing. And either way, those are willful sins. Mark that word in verse 26, the word sin in Hebrews 10, 26. It's it's a word that literally means to miss the mark. This particular word in the original language is har martano. Har martano. And what it means is to err like error, to swerve or to do wrong. And the idea is missing the mark. When you think of missing the mark, think of a marksman. Think of a a bow and arrows pulling back the arrow and shooting at the bullseye. When you miss the bullseye, you have missed the mark. You could say that you sinned. And the mark for the believer in our lives, if you'd look at our lives as aiming towards something, is perfection. And because all of us have missed perfection, We have, therefore, sinned, and we've sinned willfully. Sin is a part of our lives, even as believers. As believers, we continue to sin. We are not sinless followers of Jesus. Neither do we become sinless this side of eternity. Because the Bible says if you have failed in one area of the law, you've broken it all. And that's how we were introduced to Jesus, by our own failures. But even as believers, we still sin. We're not sinless. However, one thing you'll notice in your life is that as you continue to mature and grow in God's grace, even though you won't become sinless, you will find yourself sinning less, avoiding it, taking the way of escape, resisting temptation, resisting the devil, and he flees from you. So if if we willfully sin, that's all of us, then these things apply, but I want you to notice when you get to verse 32, there is a contrast being made here where it says, but recall the former days. So as he's writing, he is writing to a group of Hebrew believers that have a context. And that word's very important, context. Not only do they have a context, and so do you, the Bible has a context. And don't let anyone ever come to you with this passage of scripture, taking it out of context. You say, Ed, what do you mean? Well, the Bible was written to a particular group of people in a particular time, and it meant something to the original audience. So until you understand what it meant to the original audience, you will never be able to understand what it means to you today. And that's a big mistake that teachers make and many pastors make. They just skip the context completely and they just say, well, this is what I think the Bible says to you today. But we are separated by thousands of years from the people that it was written to. And we're not Hebrew Christians living in the first century that have a temple with temple worship happening in our own backyard, that's not us. So in order for us to understand what this text means, we need to first understand what it meant historically, grammatically, and also contextually. And I'm sure you have met people over the the years that have taken the Bible out of context. Another way that we might say that is that they'll take the Bible and make it say whatever they want it to say. Well, don't listen to people like that because the Bible says what God wants us to say. And so we gotta get to the heart of the matter so that we understand what he meant to the audience, then we can understand what it means to us today. So never forget to read the Bible in its context, to who it was written, to the audience, because we won't be able to fully understand God's heart until we understand what God was saying in the moment. Now remember, Hebrews, this book that we've been studying for many months now, was written to a group of Jewish believers who were being drawn back and tempted back to temple worship with its sacrificial system. They would literally bring their offerings of sacrifice into the temple to the priests and offer them up in replacement of their sins by faith in God until Messiah came. And we've learned in our study in Hebrews that when Messiah came, he's the lamb once for all given himself in sacrifice that he takes away. He doesn't cover sins. Jesus literally takes away our sins and he's the last sacrifice. So here's the warning in the minds of those listening. Here's the warning. If you return to temple worship, if that's the choice you make, to offer a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice for your sins, you have missed the point completely and you're turning your back on the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what it says in verse 26. He says, if you go back, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So what he's saying is after the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, all those other sacrifices that are still ongoing don't matter. They have no bearing on a person's life. Once Jesus has come, once he died, once he was buried, and once he rose again, there is no more sacrificial system ever, never, ever for the forgiveness of your sins or mine. That's why you don't see people walking into church on a Sunday with a lamb around their neck right up to the altar here and saying, here it is, Ed. No, 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 hopefully if you came to church with a lamb around your neck, they would catch you before you ever get in the building. And go, well, dude, what are you doing? Well, I just came, I'm, I read the Bible and it says I'm supposed to bring my animal. Well, no, no, no. You didn't read far enough because as you continue to read, you'll learn that Jesus Christ took the full weight and penalty for your sins and mine by the blood that he shed on the cross some 2,000 years ago. We don't offer animals anymore. So you can take your lamb back home, put it back in the backyard. We don't need to sacrifice it. And you can enjoy your lamb because you enjoy the lamb of God who takes away the sins of your life and your family, everyone that places their faith in him. They're ready to leave the sufficiency of the work of Jesus and go back to the temple and offer. And they're saying, there's no sacrifice at the temple anymore. It's gone. And you might say, but they're doing it still. No, no, it's done. They're doing it in vain. It will mean nothing. There is no more sacrificial system that is in place for us to go. Remember, and it was, it was limited. Remember what an open door? It was only the high priest that went in once a year to the Holy of Holies, spread the blood on the mercy seat. And it was there that, that the sins of the whole nation would be covered. Everyone had their place their faith in Jesus Christ. That's done. Now today, because you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you no longer have to go backwards. That is it, that's the warning here. It's not a warning about losing your salvation. Don't let people use this text to go, oh, see, you can lose your salvation. Nowhere, anywhere in the Bible is there ever one example, not even one, of a person being born again, unborn again, born again, unborn again, nowhere. There's no example of someone having eternal salvation that somehow it became temporary. Now, we've studied this in deeper ways in other Bible studies, especially in the book of 1 Peter. So I'd encourage you to go to our app and search through 1 Peter. I forget the title of the message, but it is a message all about the eternality of salvation and the sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ and not your own works. Because can you imagine if salvation depended on your good works? How many times would you lose your salvation in a day, in an hour, in the last 15 minutes? It's not our works. We're saved by what? Grace, through faith. It's not our works, it's a gift of God. You can't add to what Jesus did on the cross. You can't add by promise keeping. You can't add by confessing to a man. You can't add by doing good deeds, by giving more, by doing more. That's a religious mindset. A religious mindset is I'm going to do for God so that I might feel better about myself. But a relationship mindset is that I abide in Christ because he has done it for me. All of it. I don't add anything. I have, being here today, obeying God in my calling and teaching you a Bible study makes me no better than you. And it doesn't make God love me anymore. He loves me and because of his love, I love him. And I want to be faithful to him. I want to do what God's called me to do. He's not making me do it. I get to do it. And there's just a life of freedom that way. I get to serve my Lord. He saved my life. I belong to him. This passage is not teaching a loss of salvation or losing something that you really never found, you never really earned. It's a warning not to go back. Because going back for a new covenant believer may indicate that you were never saved to begin with. You go, but I know a guy that's like, like you could be backslidden, that's possible. We have an example of a son running away from home and taking his inheritance. We know him as the prodigal son. He never stopped being a son even though he made a lot of bad decisions. That's possible, You most likely that's what's happening. But I can say this, there is still a warning It's a warning here, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. If you turn away, it may indicate you were never saved to begin with and you were just game playing. You never repented of your sins. You never surrendered your life and you were just playing religion. Maybe there was a girl here you wanted to meet or you thought you'd come to church, you'd find yourself a marriage or you wanted to take advantage. Whatever purpose the church gave to you, you turn your back on Jesus Christ, it may mean you never embraced him to begin with and we call you to repentance. Whichever way you get there, admit where you are and come to Jesus. There is no salvation in religion. And don't think because you're in a church that emphasizes the new covenant, that emphasizes the grace of God and the finished work of the cross, don't be mistaken that you can't fall into religious expression here. And just get into routine and repetition. Doing your duty. And that that doing your duty kind of appeases your conscience. Listen, if you're interested in doing anything, choose to abide in Christ. To stay put, to enjoy him. Because if you love him, Jesus said the natural response will be obedience. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's not you keep my commandments to prove your love for me. He didn't say that. He said if you love me, you'll be obedient. It'll happen. It'll be your life, it'll be the banner over your life. There is no salvation in religion, no hope, no help. There isn't, this isn't much of, so much a warning against backsliding as it is a warning against turning your back on the finished work of Jesus Christ. For us today, that would mean adding to it. For us today, that would, be, that would mean that we aren't serious about our relationship. It would, it would mean that we don't invest in it, that we don't care. That we don't obey Jesus when he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. It means that you're not trusting the finished. There's no sacrifice for anyone that doesn't. That, this is what verse 26 is really saying. There's no sacrifice for anyone that doesn't trust in the one sacrifice. That's not, There's nothing else. And if there's nothing else, then you're going to find yourself like fearful. There's a certain fearful expectation, verse 27, of judgment, fiery indignation. For those that are separated from God and trust in works for their salvation are going to be rudely awakened. Not only that, he contrasts in verse 28, the old covenant, Moses' law, without mercy, two or three witnesses, with the new covenant. He contrasts the covenants saying, look, even in the old covenant, two or three witnesses brought judgment. Yet now in the new covenant, the only witness that matters is Jesus. But even Jesus, he met us, didn't he? because when they came against him, he says, I'm a witness. My father's a witness. So there's two witnesses there, and you can include the person and work of the Holy Spirit. That's three witnesses that prove to you exactly what Jesus said, although we don't need them because we have the witness of the Spirit of God inside of us of his resurrection. The warning for us is don't do it. Don't turn away. Don't add to the finished work of the cross. Don't walk away, don't turn your back on Jesus. Don't minimize his work with your works because your relationship with him is of utmost importance. And you know, a lot of pastors spend a lot of time, myself included, begging you to run to the Lord. Even today, the theme of our time of communion was let's go boldly, let's go boldly. But I find at times I need to plead with you that you might taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm not pleading with you to be a good Christian. I'm not pleading with you to be a good church member. I'm not pleading with you to be a good boy, a good girl. I'm pleading with you to get right with the Lord. That's where all of life is found in him. Where true life, where your thirst for more is answered with living water that flows from within you. I remember taking our, whenever we go to Israel, we go there on the teaching steps and on the teaching steps there would be steps that Jesus would normally take to get into the temple area where in John's gospel, he would stand and say, is anyone thirst? Does anyone thirst? You keep doing this ritual with the water and you go through with the water and you go all the way down to the pool of Siloam and you come back and you go to, you come back. But who's really thirsty here? And you talk to anybody that's in a religious expression and they'll tell you how thirsty they are. Your thirst is not quenched by good works. Your thirst for righteousness and for the goodness of God is not quenched by following the law. You know what the law does? The law just awakens sin in your life and makes you more miserable. You know, you know how it is when you see a law, don't touch wet paint. What do you do? You're curious. And you probably wouldn't even c- cared about that bench unless you saw that sign, don't touch, don't touch, really. What shouldn't I touch? And you start walking circles around it. You know, maybe I will, maybe I will. No, no, it says don't touch. But that sign awaken in you, what? A sinful desire because it's always in us. And your good works will not cover that in your life. God wants to deliver you by his finished work. He is calling you to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily traps you. He's saying lay down the alcohol, lay down the drugs, crucify that part, don't dabble in it, don't go there, don't go to that relationship again, don't run away, don't turn your back, your hope is found in running to the Lord, not away from the Lord. And you go, well, I'll try to overcome it a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, and I'll do it little by little, but God wants to do it all at once if you trust him. All at once, in the moment. Don't go back to self-effort Don't go back to religious activity. Don't rely upon your own resources. Don't try to earn God's favor. Accept, receive, and rely upon the finished sacrifice for your sins. And it's finished. Jesus died for your sins in the past. Jesus died for your sins in the present. And Jesus died for any future sin. So it's all consuming. His forgiveness is complete. God has forgiven you for the past. He forgives you right now and he will forgive you. It's all encompassed in him. You cannot add one thing. Coming to Calvary Church doesn't make you any more forgiven than if you weren't here. (laughs) Or if you went to the Baptist church down the street or, or the vineyard or any of the new church plants that are popping up in high schools around town. It's not a church, it's not a location. It's Jesus Christ and his love for you. That's it. Don't turn away from it. Don't try to add to it. It's finished. And by faith, you face God not on your own works, but by the work of Jesus in your life. You don't live a life, number one, where you trample God underfoot. You don't live a life where you take the blood of the covenant and cause it to be a common thing, like it's no big deal. You don't insult the spirit of grace, according to verse 29. When you add to the finished work of Jesus, these things happen in your life. And you have to expect consequences to come. Now, he gives encouragement as he closes the chapter. Notice verse 32. He says, I want you to remember. And many times that's a tool that God uses in our lives. Jesus did that with the church in Ephesus. He said, remember where you have fallen. You left your first love, remember. So that's what what the author's doing here, I believe, is Paul. He says, recall the former days, verse 32, in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations and partly while you became companion of those who were so treated. You had compassion on me in my change. which by the way, just a side note, one of the reasons why I believe Paul is the author of Hebrews because this is a familiar phrase in Paul's letters. And so now he's telling you guys had compassion on me in my chains. He says and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence. Notice it doesn't say cast away your salvation. It doesn't say cast away your eternal soul. He says, don't throw away your confidence. When, When you add to the finished work of Jesus Christ, you are no longer confident in him. You're confident in yourself. And you know as well as I do, that will not last. It is, it is gone out the window with your first failure. So don't cast away your confidence, which has great reward, verse 36. You have need of endurance. Mark that word, circle it, we'll get back to it in a second. You have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry, Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We're going to look at this in depth next time, but you need to recognize the just lives by faith, not works. Faith in what? The finished work of Jesus Christ. That's it. You live by faith in what God has done for you through his son Jesus. Verse 39. But we are not, and this is the key, we are not those who draw back to destruction, because we're the ones that believe to the saving of the soul. You're either either an unbeliever going toward destruction, or you're a believer going, going towards, as you have accepted by faith, the saving of your soul. And reject those, would you please? Reject them stern, those that would take you to this passage of scripture and try to scare you into thinking that you might lose your salvation if you don't follow their religious system. Guess that's what they do. Well, did you know? Did you know you could lose your... And, and well, how do I get out? Follow me. No, don't follow them. Follow Jesus. That's, this text is saying the exact opposite. Don't follow man. Don't follow religious system. Follow the Lord. He'll lead and guide you. And if anyone comes to this passage of scripture and says you're going to lose your salvation, they have taken it out of... Say it with me. Taken it out of context you'll never forget that word context is king when you are listening to me teach a bible study and you're testing all things by the word of god test it by the context you've got to know the context so you'll never understand the bible and there's a lot of great tools to help you understand the context including a bible study like this reject those that would take you this and try to lord over you Nothing in this section of the Bible was ever intended to disturb or unsettle the minds of those who truly belong to Jesus. It's a warning. Warning signs should not trouble you. They should give you peace because a sign is telling you there's trouble up ahead and if you choose right now, you can avoid it. Warning signs shouldn't trouble us. So you're driving around the road and there's a big warning sign. Bridge is out in two miles. You don't pull the car over and go, oh my, I don't know what's going to happen. In two miles, the bridge is out. No, the sign says, don't go that way. And so you choose, I don't think we should be going this way, honey. What do you think? Well, Google says it's fine. No, don't listen to Google. The sign says, don't go, the bridge is out. And so warning signs actually comfort us. Like, I I like warning signs. I think of those that work on CDOT and they work on the highways and how do we always have those signs? Give them a break and be careful because accidents happen. My son, a CHP officer, was in many, many accidents as a cop in his car because there was a need to be careful when there are flashing lights. You know, when you're not the one they're flashing the lights on, those flashing lights are telling you to be careful and move over so that they're safe. Those lights speak of safety to us, even if they are behind you. (laughs) That's a different Bible study altogether, but they're meant to encourage us. So this passage is not intended to disturb you. And here's the thing, and I'll leave you with this, actually a couple things. Verse 36 is a very important passage because verse 36 says, here's your great need." Some of you came to church today with a big question on your mind. You tuned in on the radio with things swirling through your life right now, watching online in the comfort of your home with a nice cup of coffee and the fireplace on. I'm sure it's really nice there. And you have questions as well. And I believe for many of you, the answer is right. Um, Here's the answer. You have need of endurance. That's your need today. Circle that word endurance and right next to it, hupomone, that's the Greek word, H-U-P-O-M-O-N-E. It is a powerful Bible word, hupomone. It's translated here, endurance. In other places, it's translated perseverance. The idea behind the word is that you bear up under the load. And we all carry loads. We bear up under it so that we can obey Jesus to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. But there are those times when there are burdens on us. There are those times when there are difficulties. There are those times when we're tempted to go backwards. We're tempted to add. We're tempted. And yet we have need of endurance. We have need of endurance because we, you know, for them, they ex- look at what they experienced and they got through it. He says when he recall the former days, what he's asking them to recall is how God got them through those. Remember when you lost everything? Remember when it was hard? Remember when you had the reproaches and tribulations? It wasn't like that in temple worship. And that's why some people want to go back, they're like, well, it's so hard to be a believer now that I want to go back to my past life. Your past life is way worse than your life today. I promise you, isn't the devil such a liar? He goes, you know what, if you just went back to your past, things would be good, and he's so selective. And he only brings back memories of happy days and smiling days. And and he only brings, he doesn't bring back memories. Hey, go back to your past. Remember remember when you woke up in your own vomit? Yeah, let's go back there. Nah, dude, I don't want to go back there. That was really bad. I was sharing my testimony recently in these men's conferences. And you may be familiar with this already, but it was so bad in the day when I was an unbeliever and in the party scene and with, it would be so bad. I would be, I would be such a bad person under the influence of whatever I was under the influence that I would literally wake up in the morning face down somewhere in my city that I got so, I got so bad that the dudes that were driving didn't even want to take me all the way home. They pushed me out of the car. I remember one in in particular, I was literally seven seven or eight houses from where I lived face down in a car wash. And then I'd have to wake up that morning and start making phone calls before cell phones. So if I called and it was busy, I'd have to wait to call back. And I'd remember those calls. Hey, what did I do last night? I don't know. You need to ask Jack. Click. Hey, what did I do last night? Because I'm going to call Jack last if his name keeps coming up. Because I really don't want to know. Yeah, go back to those days, Ed. No, thank you. I'm a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I'm not going back. And I'm asking you not to go back either. It's not that good. It's bad. It's bad. And so as new creations in Christ, or like the New Living Translation, the New Living Translation says that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And here's the problem. You are still living the old life, and you're miserable, and it's destroying you, and it's harming you, and everybody that loves you. You need to choose through endurance, hupomone, you need to choose to live in the newness of life. Moment by moment, that's a definition of abiding, drawing from his strength. You don't want to go back. But if you take a step back, if you take a step back, where's the next step going to go? Back and back. You've got to set your eyes toward the Lord, looking unto him, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that set before him, he endured. You have great need for endurance. Jesus endured the Cross. These guys lost everything. Most people that I'm talking to today can't say they lost everything. You may have lost some things for following Jesus, but not everything. The Hebrew believers lost their family, literally, ostracized. Their family would say, You're dead to me. They, they lost their possessions. They lost their so- social status. They lost their careers. They lost, they lost everything that you could possibly, they lost Everything for the sake of their faith in Jesus Christ. And I wonder if they were wanting some of those things back. Even just what it felt like to be a part of community, what it felt like to talk to your family. And Paul's saying here, don't do it. There's nothing back there for you. There's nothing back there in empty religion. And remember how God got you through it all. And today, with this temptation, you have need of endurance. But you know what we do? Instead of taking the endurance of God, we, have, we play another game with another Greek word, Hypokrites. You guys know that better as playing the hypocrite. And you go, Ed, how could you possibly call me a hypocrite? Let me explain. One of the places hypocrisy is most seen is in a gathering like this, <laughs> where you come into church and, and, you know, you just put a face on you don't really want to deal with anyone. You don't really want to talk about anything. You just put a face on so that, hey, how you doing? How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. You're not doing great. Next time somebody asks you how you're doing, tell them, I'm doing horrible. What part of my life do you want to hear? You go, if I would never do that, then how will anyone ever pray for you? How will you ever let anyone into your life? How will you ever find yourself strong in the body of believers if you don't admit honestly? Remember what we did? Remember that passage for communion? where it said everything is naked and open before the one of whom we'll give account. You know, nakedness wasn't always bad. Before sin, nakedness is what Adam and Eve lived in. It wasn't an issue. It spoke, of, it, it spoke of vulnerability. It spoke of intimacy. It spoke of a life without hypercritical judgments. It was only after sin that God then began to cover those parts of the body that would bring shame to a person. And, it would try, and they, they even recognized that Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves. And so here we are covered today with clothing. But you know, some of you have covering on your faces. Some of you are not telling the truth about life. And it's not even really, really, I just think this is a word from the Lord for someone. It's not even you telling the truth to me. It's about you telling the truth to yourself. I guess where true repentance comes, where you're honest with yourself, that this is where you are, and you are at the end of yourself, crying out to the completed work of Jesus in your life once again. What do you need? You need endurance. You don't need hypocrisy. You need hupomone, to, to stand strong in the perseverance of God. Winston Churchill, was used to bring great encouragement. And I love what he says here, and I'll quote him. He said, and I quote, never give in, never give in, never, 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 in nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in, except the convictions of honor and good sense, never give in. And that was his advice to the country in a time of great peril. And wouldn't you know it, last night after service, brother up on the prayer team comes up and he wants to show me something that fell out of his bible it was a bookmark you know what the bookmark said Winston Churchill never 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 give up end quote right in his bible you know who gave it to him his mom his mom he was in a pretty serious accident not too many years ago and tempted with giving up and it was the advice that a mom gives to her son hey you're going through it don't give up don't give in. You're going to get through this. It's the advice of apostle Paul to believers. Hey, don't give in. Remember the days that God got you through it. Remember, recall those days. You can make it through. Jesus, he is sufficient. The blood covers all of your sins, takes you. Don't give in. It's the advice that I give to you. Don't give in. Don't give up. Don't run away. You have need of endurance and God provides endurance. And it's the advice that God gives to us through his word. Don't give in, don't give up. You have need of endurance. And so you can see, turn back to Hebrews six now. Let me show you one more thing and then we'll head out. That's the famous last words of a pastor. One more thing. And that just means there's probably 10 things still. let me finish, because I want you to see, you've got to understand this aspect. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. Because Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 are passages that people love to argue about. They want to make a big deal about it. They don't want to, they just argue, argue, argue. And when you argue about something, you almost always miss the point. So check this out. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11, it says... And we desire that each of you show the same diligence to full assurance of hope until the end. That you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That little nugget of full assurance of hope all the way to the end is hidden in a controversial passage. And the little nugget of staying strong and you you have a need of endurance, endurance and hope, are hidden in passages that people love to argue about. So if you're an arguer and you're a guy that loves or a gal that loves to argue and loves to fight about things, just ask yourself if you're missing the whole point altogether. Because when you dwell on the hope that God gives and his faithfulness and his goodness, when you dwell on his power to endure, you're just so caught up in the love of God that you're not going anywhere. You're not going back. You're you're not adding. You're just enjoying The presence of God in your life. And we can be confident as we walk by faith that our great high priest will guide us and bring us all the way home. Good stuff. So, Father, thank you for the privilege today of teaching and being together. A lot going on in our church family, a lot going on in the body of Christ. And, you know, forgive us for our failures, forgive us, God, for our weaknesses. Even these temptations to go backwards, they're all, they, we all face them, and we just have need of endurance. Would you just pour out your spirit today in a spirit of endurance, a hupomone on your church today, both near and far, though, both close and away, both in the building and outside of the building. May you do a work in us to keep us strong in our times of weakness, to give us compassion and a heart to love others.